Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, I speak to a molecular geneticist about how quantum processes can play important roles in living organisms. And we also chat about the role of Occam's razor in science. But first, I meet a philosopher of science, and we talk about some of the big philosophical questions in physics, including the microscopic basis for the second law of thermodynamics. Physics World. I'm embarrassed to say that I know very little about the philosophy of physics. So I'm pleased to have Katie Robertson on the program. She's a philosopher of science at the University of Birmingham who specializes in physics. Hi, Katie. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Katie, I'm really looking forward to this conversation, uh, especially um, in, in a bit. We're going to talk about some recent research that you've been doing, which uh, which I found fascinating. But um, but first things first, can we can we talk about the field in general? What mm. interests philosophers in physics? Well, philosophers of physics, uh, in some ways, have very similar interests uh, to physicists. You know. In very broad brush terms, uh, philosophers are interested in you know the nature of the world, right? That's what physicists are also interested in. So there's a lot of commonality between um, kind of uh, physics and philosophy, and you know you might even think of the two as sort of being continuous. You know, when uh, Newton wrote the Principia, he called it the mathematical principles of natural philosophy. So philosophy of physics, in some ways, follows on from that kind of tradition uh, a few centuries ago, where uh, you know what was what we would now think of as physics um, was called then natural philosophy, and you know there's changes in uh, kind of institutional setup such that physics and philosophy are now kind of further from each other than they would have been then, where they would have been kind of somewhat indistinguishable between between the two. Um, but yeah, so so in that sense, there's a there's a lot of common uh, ground between both physics and philosophy. And, and so, what are the big questions today in in the philosophy of physics? Well, um, there's the obvious uh, big question, which kind of looms very large, perhaps more so for um, philosophers of physics than physicists, which is, you know, the famous measurement problem, Schrodinger's cat. Why is it that we only see one measurement outcome uh, in uh, quantum mechanics? So I think uh, philosophers of physics have spent a lot of time grappling with that problem, whereas I guess some uh, physicists can kind of follow the Feynman line of shut up and calculate and just get on with um, kind of doing experiments and proving new results. Whereas uh, philosophers of physics are kind of very interested in the kind of conceptual foundations, such as um, the Schrodinger's cat problem or um, where the arrow of time comes from. If the kind of fundamental level doesn't look like it distinguishes a direction, how come it everything around us seems to have a particular direction. Um, you know, wine glasses smash, they never unsmash. Um, uh, so yeah, the, the, the arrow of time. Also, where do probabilities come from? Should we think of them as being uh, a reflection of us in some way? Are they kind of our, measuring our uncertainty in the way that when we flip a coin, uh, we don't know whether it's gonna land heads or tails and that's kind of to do with us not knowing uh, every single thing about the trajectory, exactly what the forces are on the coin. So that kind of represents what we don't know. Um, 
or are they kind of more fa- like fundamental? Are they something in the world independently of us? So the question about uh, the nature of probabilities, and I guess uh, a more recent uh, problem has been how should we think of um, space-time emerging from what might be a kind of fundamentally non-spatiotemporal uh, theory of quantum gravity? So those are the kind of uh, some of the big questions, at least uh, in the philosophy of physics. Now, Katie, you mentioned. Um quantum mechanics. And, you know, yeah. I can remember when I was studying quantum mechanics as an undergraduate in the 1980s, it was very much a, a sort of shut up and calculate approach. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked a little bit about the, the I suppose, the weirdness of it all. Yeah. Um, but it, it strikes me that today, um, you know, with, with things like quantum computers and quantum mm-hmm. information theory, that maybe physicists have become more interested um, in in the philosophy of, of quantum mechanics or, or, or that that interest has been renewed. Is, is that yeah. something that you're seeing in the community? Yes, yeah, certainly. So I think um, particularly like the quantum information, quantum computing uh, community is very much uh, engaged with these kind of foundational questions um, as well. Um, perhaps less so with the question of uh which so so sometimes the different possible resolutions to the measurement problem, the Schrodinger cat question, um, those different possible resolutions are called uh, interpretations of quantum mechanics. And I think that the uh, foundations of quantum mechanics, um, particularly those that work in quantum information theory, are very much engaged with these kind of conceptual issues. Though perhaps the different interpretations of quantum mechanics has been more of a focus of philosophers of physics. But you know, perhaps that's just a terminological thing of who 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 works in which which um, department. But yeah, there's certainly a lot of overlap um, in the quantum foundations. Now, Katie, you mentioned earlier that physicists and philosophers um, ha- have a common goal. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're looking for the truth or, or the best way to understand um, mm-hmm. a, a physical system. But how are, are the approaches different? H- how would you approach um, a problem as compared to, you know, let's say a theoretical physicist? Right. So I guess one, one difference you know, I guess the, the most extreme difference would be not so much with the theoretical physicist, but with the experimental physicist, right? I think that's the kind of approaches where uh, philosophy of physics seems much further away um, than uh, philosophy of physics seems very far away from how a physicist would approach it in the, in the experimental context. In the case of um, theoretical physics, you know, there's more overlap. Um, in general, philosophers of physics are interested in kind of interpretational or conceptual questions, which don't necessarily then involve proving new results, for instance. Though that said, some some philosophers of physics do prove new results and have them published in physics journals. So it's not that uh, no one's doing that, but I guess that that's the kind of, uh, the focus is slightly shifted. So perhaps it's more about um, how do we get, uh, you know, one theory out of another theory? We're used to thinking of that in the case of uh, getting back Newtonian mechanics from special relativity in the low velocity limit, right? That's kind of the easy case of how to get one theory back from another. But obviously there's, you know, loads of different physical theories and lots of questions about how they're connected to each other. Um, so that would be kind of one approach that perhaps um, the philosopher of physics would focus more on those kind of interpretational questions, whereas um, the theoretical physics physicist might focus more on, uh, you know, showing a new result, deriving something that hasn't been seen, seen before. Um, so that's perhaps one slight difference. Now, you've written a paper recently that looks at um, a, a microscopic mechanism for mm-hmm. the second law of thermodynamics. 
Um, can you outline the philosophical problem that you've addressed in this paper and, mm -hmm. um, and, and talk about your conclusions? Right. So um, it kind of links back to this uh, question, the kind of description of uh, philosophy of physics that I uh, mentioned at the beginning, which was um, philosophers of physics or philosophers of science in general are kind of interested in how the different descriptions we have of the world all fit together. So Eddington had this um, famous example of uh, the table where, you know, there's a table as uh, it looks to us an experience, like it looks like it's kind of solid and uh, made of wood, has a particular color. And then he called the kind of contrasting image, the kind of scientific um, image of the table where, you know, it was largely empty space um, between the between the different atoms of the table. Um, and so part of the project um, that I'm interested in is how we fit together these different images or descriptions of the world. Um, and one of the kind of typical examples of this is how we kind of um, fit together the description given by um, statistical mechanics or quantum and cl or classical mechanics uh, with the description given by thermodynamics, um, because these seem to kind of operate at slightly different levels less extreme than the two different tables of Eddington, um, but a kind of similar idea of how to kind of derive one level or explain the higher level in terms of the lower level. You know, if we think that ultimately uh, we should think of the world as being made up of, you know, a soup of quantum fields, why is it that we kind of get this kind of macroscopic structure out of that? Um, and so uh, sometimes that project is called the kind of project of inter-theory relations or inter-theoretic inter reduction. Um, and the case of thermodynamics and statistical science is normally taken to be like the poster child uh, as an example of where this can be done. And some people think, oh, that's a really easy case. Uh, other people kind of point out, well, actually, there's certain differences between the two. And it's not totally clear that the whole thing goes through. And, and Katie, j j just for any listeners who are not familiar with thermodynamics and, and statistical yeah. mechanics, th thermodynamics is, 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 is the description, that the sort of large-scale macroscopic description yeah. of a system. So, for example, a gas, it would be the pressure and the, exactly. the volume of the gas and the temperature, whereas yeah. statistical mechanics is a microscopic description. So you're looking at the, the gas molecules mm. themselves and exactly. how they move around. Exactly, um, yeah. And and so you're looking at taking those two very different views and yeah. seeing how they go together. Exactly. It's kind of a, a particular case of how the kind of macroscopic comes out of the microscopic. Um, so yeah, thermodynamics, I mean, lots of my research is focused on thermodynamics. And I think it's a, a fascinating theory kind of invented in the Industrial Revolution to understand steam engines. Uh, and now it applies to all sorts of different systems. Um, but yes, as you say, it involves macroscopic variables like pressure, temperature, volume and uh the kind of underlying theory uh is either kind of uh you can think of like the quantum description of the gas or the classical description which you can imagine are the billiard balls all hitting into each other and then asking about okay so on average what are the billiard balls doing or what is the quantum state doing um and so um my project um that you mentioned before was about uh how to get out um the thermodynamic entropy an entropy that's defined in terms of heat um, in a kind of cycle, the famous Carnot cycle, kind of a gas expanding and contracting in contact with a heat bath or not, how to get back the thermodynamic entropy from the underlying microscopic um, description. Um, and in particular, I was interested to show how, so, so traditionally the problem has been that, you know, uh, the Gibbs entropy uh, is 
constant. So you can think of it as being a kind of a measure to give you kind of an image of it, uh, a measure of the kind of volume of the probability distribution in phase space. So you can imagine um, an ink drop falling into a glass of water. Now, the, the volume of the ink drop doesn't change. It kind of fribulates out throughout the whole glass. So it looks like the whole glass has gone from being water to now having a kind of constant pale blue color, say if it was a, a drop of uh, blue ink. Um, but obviously we know that the ink hasn't literally spread. It hasn't kind of uh, increased in its volume. It's just spread out throughout the glass. And so that looks like uh, if the entropy is like the blob of ink, it hasn't increased. So how do we get uh, entropy increasing from the microscopic foundations? And so that's a, the kind of tricky question of how to, to get back some, get kind of this irreversible behavior, this increasing entropy from the underlying kind of reversible non-entropy increasing behavior. And so, so, so the entropy is a, uh, a, a, I suppose originally it's a thermodynamic concept mm -hmm. that, that it, I mean, it's there, I suppose, in the second law and it, it makes that, well, things happen. I don't know if it makes things happen, but, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's there. Whereas yeah. in the microscopic description, there, the, the, is it the, that there is no entropy, that you, you can't, you can't give a, 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 an ensemble of interacting molecules let's say entropy or well you can give them an entropy it's just a slightly different um function so the thermodynamic entropy is defined with respect to heat and temperature in particular uh very slow processes you know as you pull the piston out incredibly slowly in what's called a quasi-static uh process um whereas the entropy in statistical mechanics um is a function of the probability distribution so there's a kind of it's this rho log rho uh, uh, formula for the for the Gibbs entropy, um, and the question is how to show that the kind of the Gibbs entropy can play the right role. It can act like the thermodynamic entropy. It increases right. in the yeah. right circumstances and is constant in the other in in the kind of uh, very qu slow quasi-static cases. And the tricky thing for the Gibbs entropy is showing how it can increase because of the. Uh, the, the kind of analogy with the ink drop that I mentioned before, it looks like it's always going to be constant. And in order for it to behave like the thermodynamic entropy, it's going to have to increase in certain cases. And so the kind of tricky thing is to show how exactly uh, the Gibbs entropy increases. Um, and so what did you find in your work then? Um, so I think that uh, you can uh, use... A procedure known as coarse graining, which is very common, is basically you throw away some information about the system. Um, and when you do that, it looks like you can show that the Gibbs entropy increases. So there's this kind of fine grained Gibbs entropy that doesn't increase. And then there's this coarse grained Gibbs entropy, which does increase. Um, but the tricky problem is working out how to justify those coarse grainings, because um, it's just a kind of a map that throws away information about the system. You know, which, which maps are good maps um, is a hard question. And often people have justified it by making reference to, well, you know, we can't really tell the difference. Our measurement precision is not good enough to tell the difference between the fine-grained um, description and the coarse-grained description. So that's why we can use the coarse-grained description. But this was kind of seen as bit kind of horribly anthropocentric. It's like, yeah, we can't tell the difference between the two, but there clearly is a difference. Like, why should we be justified in making that maneuver? Does it mean that they're kind of resulting uh, irreversibility or asymmetry that we get out is just an artifact of how we see the world rather than how the world really is. 
Um, so I've offered a different justification, which is uh, that you can think of coarse graining as abstracting to a higher level of description, a bit like going from the microscopic variables involving the position and momenta of all the different billiable type model of the gas to talking about the macroscopic variables like the pressure and the volume. You know, that's an abstraction to a different level of description. And you can think of coarse graining as doing a similar thing. Um, and in particular, we kind of choose which map we use if it allows us to uncover kind of autonomous dynamics, so kind of closed form equations. Um, and that's not very easy to do. You know, you've got to uh, you've got to work quite hard to find an irreversible equation like the Pauli master equation or the Boltzmann equation out uh, from these underlying principles. Um, so we don't have to then think that the reason we coarse grain is just because we can't tell the difference. We can think, oh, no, there's these kind of principled reasons why uh, we can coarse grain. Um, you know, we choose variables not because of uh, their variables that seem obvious to us. But they're variables that we can give like good descriptions of the system in terms of. Um, and that's, you know, not, not dependent on how we see the world. And that, you know, to me as a physicist, it, it, it sounds like a lot of, of physics in there. Is, it, it, yeah. Are you able to, you know, sort of point out exactly where the philosophy comes in? Is it yeah. in making the decisions um, as to how, you know, what descriptions you use? Right. And justifying those decisions. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the the um, physicist can say, look, I've managed to derive this equation. I've de derived the Boltzmann equation or the Langevin equation or something, one of these irreversible equations of statistical mechanics where entropy increases. And then I think the, the philosopher says, well, why was that justified? The physicist can go, well, it works. I'm moving on to the next problem. Right. Um, <laughs> and I, mean, I think that the philosopher of um, physics is kind of saying, well, why did that description, why did that? method work, what justified those conditions? And this was a problem that really plagued um, Boltzmann, one of the foundation, one of the kind of founders of statistical mechanics, right? He was really worried about how to get out an uh, increasing entropy function from the underlying reversible microdynamics. Um, and so it's not that, you know, no physicists are interested in how to justify various assumptions. It's just that, um, you know, it's the, the, the philosopher is really interested in how uh, to justify those assumptions. Why is it that we have to make, I don't know, an initial state assumption? Why is that kind of uh, physically uh, representative of the system? And those are the kind of questions that the philosopher of physics uh, spends their time worrying about. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Uh, well, that, I mean, that makes perfect sense. Um, so, so, Katie, you're going to be speaking um, at How the Light Gets In Festival. Yes. Um, which runs from uh, the 2nd to the 5th of June in Hayon Y, and th that's in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, wh what will you be talking about at the festival, and what are the challenges of communicating some of the difficult um, philosophical and physics concepts that you've been talking to me about mm -hmm. um, to the public? I is that a real yeah. challenge? Well, I think just to answer the question about um, how to communicate, um, I think... We get so used to like, uh, you know, being able to just write down a few equations and, you know, explain what's going on to colleagues. But I think in communicating with the public, it's often really helpful to just have um, analogies to show, to kind of give a vivid sense of what the problem is. So, you know, instead of thinking about um, why you can justify uh, irreversible maps uh, with a particular mathematical definition that requires certain assumptions, initial state and Markovian approximations, instead of talking about it that way, you can talk about it in terms of why is it that when we, you know, have the blob of um, 
uh, ink going into the glass, it looks like it spreads out in a coarse grained way versus uh, the kind of zoomed in version where it's fibrillating out. So I think, um, yeah, I, I think that thinking, having kind of a visual image can be a helpful way to, to, um, to communicate these things. Um, and in terms of what I'm going to talk about, how the light gets in, um, I'm going to talk about um, thermodynamics. So as I mentioned before, this has kind of uh, been the focus of lots of my research. Um, so it's a kind of weird theory. Uh, unlike most physical theories where you have a kind of the state of the kind of you can think of, uh, we have, you know, the kinematics, what possible state the system can be in. Kind of the points in the uh, the state space that say, okay, it can have this velocity in this position. Um, and then we think of the dynamics as kind of showing how the system moves through those kind of possibilities over time. It's kind of a, a way we often think about physical theories. Um, in thermodynamics, there's nothing like that because the key states of the system are equilibrium states, where by definition, nothing happens. The system just sits there. So it's a very strange um, physical theory, so much so that it's been called the village witch um, of physics um, in a recent review, because it's sort of very different from other physical theories, but somehow other theories kind of get, kind of ask the village witch for advice and kind of it, uh, thermodynamics kind of guides our search for other theories, for instance, for a theory of quantum gravity in the case of black holes. So, um, yeah, I'm going to be talking about thermodynamics in the village witch. Um, and in particular, um, there's lots of different kind of thought experiments or demons that have kind of plagued her history um, because, um, so, so, you know, there's the famous example of Maxwell's demon, which is meant to show that the second law, in fact, can be violated. If you're just kind of nimble fingered enough, as what uh, Maxwell called it, you could kind of see which molecules were moving fast, which was moving slow and open a trap door. Um, and so get a temperature difference and violate the second law. Yeah, so, that's something that's definitely fascinated physicists, haven't it? Yeah. I mean, it seems like every every year or so we, we're writing a news story about uh, some grand scheme yeah. <laughs> for creating Maxwell's demon that yeah. never quite works. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting. So Maxwell thought that it was just like our kind of clumsy fingeredness that meant that we couldn't violate the law. Um, if if we were a bit more nimble, then perhaps we would. Um, but I think there are, in fact, reasons to think that we can't um, violate the second law, which actually link up to the kind of information theory stuff that we started off talking about, which is um, there's a principle that says uh, when you uh, erase information, it costs you. Um, it costs work to do that. So, you know, the second law is defined normally in terms of cycles. Whether that's going to mean that you need to bring everything back to its original state, including the demon. So any information that it has um, needs to be sort of reset to really count as a kind of cycle and to be a real violation of the second law. Um, and there's this principle called Landauer's principle, which says, no, actually, that's going to cost you. Um, and so then, it, you know, we can't really get violations of the second law. We can't get kind of meaningful violations. We might get lucky and occasionally due to fluctuations, uh, get a bit more heat sorry, turn a bit more heat into work than uh, we can normally do on average. Uh, but nonetheless, we can't really get these kind of meaningful violations. So that's one of the demons. Um, and then there's two other demons. There's the Loschmitz demon. So earlier I mentioned um, Boltzmann and his worry about how to get irreversibility out of um, reversibility. And he had this uh, famous theorem called the, the H-theorem, um, which showed how you could get some uh, probability-like function to increase over time, the, the entropy of it to increase over time. And uh, Loschmidt, the kind of, uh, his kind of fellow, fellow Austrian uh, physicist, um, said, well, look, 
why can't I just, you said that the gas molecules all bumping into each other will satisfy this condition, but can't I just turn around the direction that every molecule is moving in? And so it retraces its steps back to the earlier lower entropy state, um, to which Boltzmann said, well, go, fine, go ahead, try and do that, you know, try and reverse them. And it's actually, you know, very difficult because we can't uh, turn around each uh, each molecule. Um, it looks like we, it just it's just that we can't do it. Um, and in fact, that's actually been one of the cases that uh, you mentioned that Maxwell's demon perhaps never really quite gets experimentally realized. Loschwitz demon, uh, this kind of one where you kind of retrace the steps, is uh, realized in the case of uh, uh, spin echoes uh, in uh, nuclear magnetic resonance. Oh, right, yeah. Um, it's just that you, yeah, you can basically re uh, apply a radio frequency pulse such that the kind of system uh, turns around and goes back to its earlier state. Um, but that, again, doesn't really seem like a true violation of the second law because, you know, you've had to have this external intervention on the system to get it back to its um, earlier state. Um, and then there's just one more demon that I'm going to talk about at the festival, uh, which is Laplace's demon. So Laplace, uh, you know, it's very difficult for us to imagine ever being able to calculate the trajectories of every molecule in a, in a gas. You know, 10 to the 23 is a really big number. We just don't have the ca calculational capacity to do that. Um, but kind of Laplace said, well, imagine that there's a creature that can know every, you know, the kind of positions and velocities or, you know, whichever variables you want to know about the world, this, this creature can do it and it can calculate everything. Um, and... Uh, the interesting question for statistical mechanics is statistical mechanics involves probabilities and probability distributions of where, on average, you think um, the molecules in the gas will be. Um, and uh, if those probabilities just reflect, well, we can't actually calculate it, we can't know it, um, then it seems like uh, this demon would be able to do it. Um, so the question is then whether all of these kind of higher level or non-fundamental descriptions are kind of due to kind of heuristic shortcuts because we can't do the kind of full calculations. Um, but interestingly, things look very different when instead of taking this kind of classical worldview where we think about the trajectories um, of individual molecules that, you know, we know from quantum mechanics is kind of a fiction, right? There's no, uh, the molecules don't have a well-defined position and uh, momentum at the same time. The Heisenberg uncertainty relation tells us that that can't be the case. Um, so in the quantum case, things look very different. And um, I'm going to argue that perhaps uh, Laplace's demon in the quantum case isn't, isn't any better off than we are. Um, it's not that the demon can know uh, everything about the system. There are kind of limitations put on that by, by quantum mechanics. Wow, that sounds sounds amazing. Witches and demons, it's like a, a Shakespearean tragedy. So, uh, yeah, that, that that sounds like a really entertaining uh, talk that you're going to be giving uh, at the festival. Thanks, Katie. Thanks for uh, coming on the podcast and talking about the philosophy of physics. Thanks for having me. The idea that quantum effects such as entanglement and tunneling could play roles in biological processes has long intrigued scientists. And as experimental and theoretical techniques have improved, the field of quantum biology has grown by leaps and bounds over the past few decades. 
To talk about the intersections of biology and quantum mechanics, I'm joined by John Joe McFadden, who's Professor of Molecular Genetics at the UK's University of Surrey. Hi, John Joe. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. It's a pleasure to be here. So, John Joe, can you give our listeners an idea of what quantum biology is, is all about? What, what are some of the key scientific questions that researchers are looking at today? Well, it really, it really arises from the realization that at its most fundamental level, biology, how biology works, how living organisms work, is by manipulating fundamental particles such as electrons and protons in molecules, in biomolecules particularly. That's really how, how biology works, how life works. And if that's the case, then if you ask a physicist or if you ask a scientist what science do you need to describe the motion of fundamental particles, they point to physics and particularly quantum mechanics. So it's becoming increasingly clear that quantum mechanics has got to be involved in biology. Enzymes move protons and electrons around in substrates. Photosynthesis moves electrons and, um, and energy uh, from a captured photon to uh, something called a reaction center to capture the energy that goes into trees and crops. So there's so much going on in quantum biology. And the more we look, the more we find new areas are turning up all the time. And, and so who's working in quantum biology? I mean, I, I assume it's a, it's a multidisciplinary field with physicists and biologists, but there, there must be a lot of chemists in there as well. Yes, there are. Um, the areas uh, go across um, mathematics, physics, chemistry, biology, and um, computer science, because... Uh, a lot of the work on the theoretical side is doing pretty massive simulations of biological systems. And as you know, bio, well, the, one of the differences between biology and physics is that uh, biologists like to deal with big, complicated stuff, and physicists like to keep it simple. And um, in order to deal with the complicated stuff, when theoreticians get their teeth into biology, they have to run big programs and big simulations. So there's a lot of computational work going on as well. And, and what are some of the big questions? I mean, I, I suppose the two, the, two, the two things that I've come across while reporting for Physics World are the idea that um, there's some sort of qu quantum process or processes involved in photosynthesis. That's one thing that I've come across. And then the other thing is... Um, how you know maybe some animals uh, such as birds uh, use uh, a quantum sensor to detect magnetic fields. I mean, are, are those uh, are those the th sort of things that people are working on at the moment? And are there other yeah, th other? That's uh, yeah, there are lots of others, but those are two of the big three. The big three, if you like, are photosynthesis and uh, the discovery that quantum mechanics seems to be involved in the. In the process that puts all the biomass on our planet, pretty much everything has been, all the carbon in our bodies has been fixed by photosynthesis uh, using energy from the sun, and that seems to involve quantum mechanics. So that is certainly important, and understanding how that uh, works is, is really uh, a big topic in quantum biology. And then there's the avian navigation system where uh, spin physics is used by birds to navigate around the world. And that's also astonishing. 
that has uh, both of these areas have applications. I mean, it has applications in sensing, uh, possibly in computing, even quantum computing, and the question of how biology manages to manipulate quantum mechanically objects um, at room temperature, um, at body temperature even, is also extremely important. So these are very important areas that understanding them will maybe provide new insights into physics even. But those aren't um, the sum total of quantum biology. There's plenty more going on. One of the other big areas is how enzymes work. Every biomolecule in every organism that has ever lived has been made by a, an enzyme. And enzymes push around atoms, um, particles, protons, electrons inside molecules to make new molecules, to make biomolecules. And that pushing and pulling involves quantum mechanics, uh, quantum tunneling, we know is involved of both pro protons and electrons, and quantum coherence may be involved as well. So um, it's uh, that's another big area, and uh, there are other areas. We have a particular interest here at Surrey on the role of quantum tunneling in in mutation. And mutation is is uh, uh, not only responsible for evolution; it's provided all the all the innovations in in evolution through the billions of years. It's also involved in uh, drug resistance in bacteria, which is a big, big problem, and also cancers are caused by mutations. So mutation is extremely important. Olfaction, smell, has been proposed to involve quantum mechanics. May, uh, visual systems, uh, how the retina works, may involve quantum mechanics. And uh, we have some projects at uh, our center looking at what we call quantum pharmacology, that maybe drugs are sometimes working through quantum mechanical mechanisms. So it's a whole um, interesting and growing and expanding field that's throwing up new insights and, and new discoveries all the time. And, and your scientific background is in the genetics of disease. Now, now you mentioned um, mutation. Um, is that how you first became interested in quantum biology? Yeah, yes, it is. Um, I was uh, working on, on mutation in, in, in some bacteria, and at the time, there was a, a discovery made by um, uh, John Cairns, a, a, a US-based scientist uh, working at MIT at the time, and he found that um, mutations appeared to become more common when they were advantageous. Now, that doesn't sound like much, but it's, it's kind of heresy in biological circles in that mutations are meant to be random, and the direction of evolution is provided by natural selection. Uh, so that's it, it went against that um, uh, that uh, belief and um, a very strong evidence for that in evolution, but it also created problems. No one could think of a mechanism. But at the time, I just read um, Schrodinger's cat, uh, John Gribbin's excellent uh, introduction to quantum mechanics, and I was bowled over. I thought, wow, this is really, really important and really interesting and really relevant to biology because. It, I realized straight away that uh, uh, if what uh, John Gribbon was describing is likely happening inside living cells. And living cells have been living with this strange science for three and a half billion years. And surely they would have discovered how to use it more effectively. So I became interested in it. And it occurred to me that there could be a quantum mechanical way of accounting for this adaptive uh, evolution, as it was called, this ability of mutations to appear when they were needed. And um, uh, I gave a talk in, in the physics department. I'm a biologist, of course, and 
uh, it's like uh, putting my head in the lion's mouth, giving me a talk in the physics department, sorry. <laughs> uh, and um, it went down okay, but Jim Alcalini was in the audience and he was more interested than, uh, than most others. And although he said you know, there's some problems with your theory, we went away and, and studied it and produced a paper that was published, I think, back in 1999. I went on to write a book, Quantum Evolution, proposing that quantum mechanics was involved in, in evolution. And, uh, and, and then the field kind of went dead, but we continued to meet and talk about things now and again. And eventually, towards the end of the... Uh, 20th century and um, beginning of the 21st century results started to appear that um, indicated that uh, quantum mechanics was indeed active in um, in living systems. So John Joe, you've teamed up with uh, Jim Alkalili, who, who's a nuclear physicist, to create the Leverhulme Quantum Biology Doctoral Training Center at the University of Surrey. Can you give us a flavor of the program? What research projects are available to students, and, um, and who signs up to, uh, to be a part of your CDT? Yeah, we have students from a number of backgrounds, um, split kind of 50-50 between uh, biologists and, um, um, and physical scientists, both uh, physicists and um, chemists. And really the challenge in, in the area of quantum biology is bringing those science together and getting physicists and um, biologists to talk to each other. So, for example, in how we tried to do that in the first year was we had our first year physics students teaching physics to our first year biology students. Oh, wow, that's a great idea. Biology students doing the opposite, teaching biology. And what that allowed them to do was to learn the difficulties of communicating across fields. And that's something that people don't realize. The terms such as fast will mean something very different in physics than it does in, in biology. So it allow, allowed the development of, of a common language between the disciplines that we hope has contributed to the success of the, uh, of the center. So we have uh, um, students from various different backgrounds and involved in projects pretty much the full range of quantum bi biology from um, photosynthesis to avian navigation to um, uh, DNA mutation, both working on the theory side and on the uh, experimental side. And so, John Joe, you've just written a book about the role of Occam's razor in science. And you're going to be talking about your book at the How the Light Gets In Festival, and that's in Hay on Y here in the UK in June. C can you give us a preview about what you're going to be talking about? What, what, what is Occam's Razor and why is it important for science? Yeah, Occam's Razor is the principle that uh, given a choice of different explanations of, to a problem, different theories, different hypotheses, Occam's razor urges us to choose the simplest, all other things being equal. If they all fit the facts, choose the simplest. And I became interested in this question when a colleague of mine gave a talk at my institute at the University of Surrey, claiming that Occam's razor doesn't really work in biology. It made me think. It also made me discover, uh, do some research into Occam's razor. I didn't really know much about it, but I discovered, but I was intrigued. But, because there's a village called Ockham not far from where the University of Surrey is based in Surrey. And um, 
and I found that it was um, it's it's named after a Franciscan friar in the 13th century who came who didn't come up with the idea exactly, but did use it more effectively than everyone else uh, to insist that we should take the simplest explanations. And this was in a world at the time in which you accounted for, say, the motions of the sun and the moon by saying there were gods pushing them or angels and sickness was caused by invisible spirits. And there were lots of explanations. It wasn't that the that the world couldn't be accounted for. It could be accounted for. But those explanations were complex. And what William Wacken did was say, look, let's get rid of anything superfluous. Let's try to drill down to the simplest possible solutions to problems. And um, that had influence pretty much immediately. Uh, at the same, uh, alchemist scholars, for example, in Paris, looked at the motions of the stars and the motions of the stars we're not so familiar with them as people in the medieval world would have been because we didn't see them every night because we live in cities but everyone in the medieval world would have known that most of the stars rotate around the earth every day and rotate around the pole star in fact uh, every day why are they doing that and um it was proposed the usual explanation was that they just do rotate they're on a sphere and they do rotate um, Jean Buridin, Jean Buridin in Paris said, well, actually, it'll make things simpler, he was an alchemist scholar, if instead of all of these stars rotating, just the Earth rotates. So he was the first person, as far as I know in history, to make that claim, and he made that claim only on the basis of it being simpler. 200 years later, and it was 200 years because a plague intervened, Copernicus used the same argument to provide the first simplification of his system. And then he again drove, he went further to drive for an even simpler system by placing the center of motion, not in the earth, but at the sun. And again, his argument for doing that was solely based on simplicity. It produced a simpler solution. It didn't actually provide any better predictions than the Ptolemaic model, which was a geocentric model that was popular at the time. It, Copernicus' system was no better at making predictions, but Copernicus and subsequent scientists such as Kepler, Galileo, and Newton all followed the Copernican system in one way or another, all argued for simplicity being the driver. And uh, this, intri this intrigued me when I found out more about it and realized that nobody realizes this, that science is really driven by this drive towards simplicity, that it underpins the history of science and still continues today. The Higgs boson was predicted on the basis of arguments based on simplicity. So even today, we're still using simplicity as a, an engine of discovery and as a way of making the world simpler and thereby more comprehensible. And also, if we go back to the quantum biology, once you try to, once you manage to simplify something, you can make a model of it. And if you can make a model of it, then you can use it in technology because it becomes predictable. So simplicity drives that uh, uh, drives the path towards technological development. Well, that sounds really fascinating, John Joe. Um, John Joe's new book is called "Life Is Simple," and I'll put a link to it in the notes for the podcast. Thanks so much for being on the podcast, John Joe. Thank you, Hamish. It was a pleasure. Boom.
Both John Joe and Katie will be appearing at the How the Light Gets In Festival, which is being held in Hay on Wye in the UK on the 2nd to the 5th of June. I'll also put a link to the festival in the podcast notes. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Katie Robertson and John Joe McFadden for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do have a listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester explores how we can cut the carbon footprint of scientific supercomputing in a conversation with an astrophysicist and a mathematical physicist. The podcast is called Cutting the Carbon Footprint of Supercomputing in Scientific Research, and it can be found on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.